Stories of the New Testament, isn't it? The Good Samaritan. And it's a model picture of the expectation that God has for us and how we're supposed to treat others. And we're going to come back to this story toward the end of the message today as we're starting our new sermon series entitled Kingdom Come. And this is a very important subject for us to study together. In fact, it's so important that Jesus mentions or talks about the kingdom over a hundred times in the Gospels. Why? Because it was so central to his message, as we'll see. Matthew 6, 9 through 13, and Luke 11, 2 through 4, when the, when the disciples asked Jesus, they said, teach us how to pray. He starts off that prayer with our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus counsels his followers here to pray for the kingdom of God to be expressed here on earth just as it is in heaven. And that has very significant meaning for us today as we'll see. And so to start the series of messages, which will carry us through Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday, we're going to look at what the kingdom of God really is and what the ramifications are of that truth for our lives today uh, in this first message entitled, The Now and Not Yet. Our main text for the study is the book of Luke, starting in chapter 17, where Jesus presents a new concept, uh, the peculiar reality that when it comes to the kingdom of God, we're living between the now and the not yet. And this kingdom theology, which is what it's referred to by scholars, is a truth that Jesus wants his followers to fully realize while they're on this earth. Because the consequences of truly understanding the petition, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, should have a direct and powerful bearing on the activity of the church in this present day. Okay, so let's turn to Luke 17, and uh, we'll see what Jesus is teaching us about the kingdom of God, and we'll start on verse 20, and uh, we find Jesus traveling here with his disciples on the way to Jerusalem, and along the way, uh, all along the way, he's teaching them. He's preparing them for the next phase of their ministry, and at one point, they encounter some Pharisees who begin to question Jesus about the kingdom of God. So let's read Luke 17, uh, starting on verse 20, and we'll see what Jesus says about the now, okay? Verse 20, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, to be sure, this statement by Jesus is new information, particularly for the Pharisees. This is a, a completely foreign concept for the religious establishment at the time. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious people, they were waiting for the Messiah to come and usher in a new age for the people of Israel to establish his kingdom among them. And they were expecting this to be a really spectacular event. Also, as we see the Old Testament drawing to a close, it ends with this uh, sense of expectation for the Jews, the, an, the anticipation for the return of the prophet Elijah, who would soften the hearts of God's people. That's in Malachi 4, 4 through 6. And, but then Malachi ends with this sense of anticipation for the Jews. And then there's 400 years of silence. 
Four centuries without an authentic prophetic voice from God to bring good news to his people. And then finally, after this long void in the biblical narrative, the silence is broken by this clarion call of one John the Baptist, crying out from the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. And that fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 40, uh, verse 3, some 700 plus years earlier. Okay, But the, the religious establishment was unresponsive as far as repentance was concerned to the message of John the Baptist. So the religious Jews were still looking for the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the, the kingdom of God. And even after the arrival of Jesus Christ, they're still looking because, of course, they didn't recognize Jesus as the Son of God. So you can imagine then that when Jesus says to them, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, this must have been very perplexing for them. It's a very odd statement to hear for someone who's yet anticipating the arrival of the Messiah, even though he's standing right in front of them. But Jesus made it clear by this statement, the kingdom is here. Now, if that's true, we need to understand what the kingdom of God is. First of all, to make sense of the very next statement that Jesus makes, which seems to contradict the proclamation that the kingdom is already here. And secondly, to understand the implications for the church today by this statement that the kingdom is in your midst. So, what is the kingdom of God? The Hebrew word for kingdom is Malkuth, and the Greek counterpart for that word is Basileia. Both of these terms primarily, more than anything, they mean rule or reign. So first and foremost, the kingdom refers to something that is happening. And only secondarily does it refer to a territory or a realm, okay? And although there's universal agreement among scholars that the kingdom of God was certainly a central theme to the message of Christ, like many of our finer points of theology and doctrine, there is not universal agreement among scholars about the meaning of the kingdom of God. All right, Some have said that the kingdom of God can, can only mean heaven because that is God's realm. Uh, some say that it's the church because God dwells within the body of Christ, the universal church. Likewise, some say it's the heart of the believer because the Spirit lives in us as individuals. And there are some who say that it only refers to a future realm, the new heavens and the new earth. But the term kingdom in Scripture very clearly, by definition has an active meaning. It is first the exercise of God's power and his dominion and sovereignty. Okay, it's his rule. It's his reign. Now, there are lots of verses that bear this out, this theological position where I'm standing and other scholars, and that the kingdom of God is actually an activity, the exercising of God's rule, whether in heaven or on earth. And we don't have time to, to read them all, uh, but we're going to read one, okay? And it's Matthew 12, 22 and 28, if you want to turn there. And Tyler, I'm ringing a little bit up here in the monitors. I've got some, some ringing. Uh, Matthew 22, or 12, 22 and 28. After healing a, a demon-possessed man, Jesus reiterates to the Pharisees what the kingdom of God is. So he spells it out here. Let's read it. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? 
But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? You see what Jesus is saying here. How will, how will Satan's rule, his reign, stand if he's divided against himself, right? Okay, verse 27. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, when the power and authority... The rule and reign of God by his spirit is being exercised among you. Then the kingdom of God has come among you. Okay? His kingdom is something that is happening rather than simply being a static location. And furthermore, it isn't happening by spectacular signs in the heavens, which is what the Jewish people were expecting. On the contrary, it was happening quietly, evident uh, not by signs in the heavens, but by the change occurring in people's lives. Therefore, when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're asking God to exert his authority and reign and power in the world so that his purposes are achieved in people's lives. So when John the Baptist announced that the kingdom of God was at hand, he was saying that God's rule, God's authority and power were just about to be exercised in the world through the Messiah, of course, Jesus Christ. And so in agreement with that statement by John the Baptist, Jesus proclaims to the Pharisees that the kingdom of God is in your midst. Why? Because Jesus was in their midst and he was clearly exercising the Father's will. His rule, his reign with power and authority on the earth. Okay? And so, that is half of the now part of the kingdom of God. That's the first half. We're going to come back to the other half of the now later in this message and we'll tie it all together. But for the moment, let's continue in our text. Luke 17 at verse 22. Now we see Jesus... Immediately after pointing out to the Pharisees that the kingdom of God is already in their midst, he now begins to explain that there's another component to this kingdom business. In other words, the kingdom, although already among them, is not complete in its fullness. The picture isn't complete. Not yet. Okay? And it, and it is in this space between the now and not yet that we currently exist. So let's read verse 22. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming. Okay, so obviously what Jesus is talking about now has yet to take place. Right? The, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. And you will look and not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Now, keep in mind, we've just had several minutes worth of discussion about verses 20 and 21, and now we're moving on to the rest of the text. But when the Pharisees asked Jesus about the kingdom of God, he said all this at one time together, right? 
In other words, he's still answering their question here. These verses are Jesus still speaking in the context of the kingdom of God. And so the first thing he says is, after he says it's in the midst of you, he says there's coming a day when you're going to wish that I was here. And in that time, there will be people who claim to know when I'm coming. Don't follow them. Be careful. Don't follow those who say, he's here. Because when I do come back, I will bring to bear on this earth the fullness of the kingdom of God once and for all. And make no mistake, there won't be any question as to what's happening on that day. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so the Son of Man will be in His day. There will be no question as to what's happening in that day. So we don't have to try and guess when that day will be. Lots of people love to do that. We just need to continue to look for Him with anticipation and rest in the hope and understanding that is His return and the fulfillment of His kingdom on earth once and for all. Okay? And then he continues with his answer. He's painting a picture here of what it's going to look like, those times when that day comes. So let's continue. Verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, but on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. And by the way, we sometimes paint these pictures of that people were uh, partying it up and, and there was all kinds of sin everywhere. Well, there was. We know that there was in, in Sodom and Gomorrah. We know that there was in Noah's day. But this specific reference is not making that point. It's making the point that we're going to be simply about our business. We're going to be going about our day-to-day -day work. There'll be no prior warning. It's just going to happen, okay? So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who's in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. All right. You may have noticed that verse 36 was left out here, by the way, depending on what version of the Bible you're reading. It's because some of the oldest manuscripts that we have don't have verse 36 in them. And so the ESV doesn't have verse 36 in it. Either way, it doesn't disagree from the passage at all. It simply says, this is verse 36, two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Okay, so it follows the, the same theme of the verses preceding it. And just a, a quick side note here, because we just finished up our sermon series in the beginning. Uh, with Noah and the flood. And we were talking about, you know, all of the apologetic and historical and anthropologic uh, arguments uh, in support of the Bible. And we were kind of going through all of that. Well, here we see Jesus referring to Noah and the flood. And he says something very interesting. He says, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed, in verse 30. And then verse 34, he says, I tell you, in that night, 
there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. And then he says, there will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. Well, Jesus refers to his second coming here as that day. And then he says, in that night, when two are in bed. But then he refers to two women working, grinding wheat or meal or grain, which was a very early morning activity during the daytime. And if you include verse 36, men working in the field, that was a midday activity. So which is it? Is he coming during the day or during the night? Or, or will it take him a couple of days to gather his people at his second coming? Well, Scripture seems pretty clear about this. The Bible says that he will come like a thief in the night. 1 Corinthians 15, 50-52, Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we sing a song about that, don't we? At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. So if the Lord's coming and the gathering of his people happens in the twinkling of an eye, in other words, in an instant, how do you explain people being taken during the day and during the night at the same time? Well, we know this, right? Because the earth is round, right? It's morning here right now, but in other parts of the world, it's nighttime right now. So it stands to reason that if his coming and the gathering of his followers happens in an instant worldwide, then for some they'll be taken in the daytime and for some they'll be taken at night. It's a cool point because 2,000 some years ago, Jesus is describing a situation that would require a round planet in an age when people believe the earth to be flat. So that's just your fun fact for today. Something to ponder on, okay, as you think about Scripture and the scientific validity and all that that we've been through in this last series. Now, let's go back to the kingdom of God. Jesus describes the state of society upon his return as it was in the days of Noah or Lot. And of course, uh, that could be any day at this point. Uh, that could be today, before this service is over. We certainly don't know. We certainly fit that description in our society today. And then he finishes his description of that great and terrible event when his enemies are defeated and the vultures feed on the bodies that are left on the battlefield. Quite a contrast between the now and the not yet. Quite a contrast between the kingdom of God in our presence now and what is yet to come is rule and reign that has already come upon the earth and the completed work of fulfillment the final coming of the kingdom of God when he returns and, and here it is that we exist squarely in between those two the now and not yet however as mentioned there's another aspect another part to the now part another half of the now part that is most pertinent for us today in the kingdom of God in the now sense, his rule and reign being exercised is being exercised. And then his kingdom is very much being expressed today through the church. The kingdom of God is here now as it is expressed by the Holy Spirit who not only rules and reigns in us but who works in power and authority through us. So the kingdom in our midst in the now certainly through uh, the function of Jesus Christ as he walked on the earth. And that's what he was talking to them about. But it's also borne out through us. 
through the Spirit of God in us. So it's not that we carry the kingdom of God around inside of us, so much as it is that the kingdom of God is realized, remember it's an activity, or expressed in the function and ministry of the church. I don't mean, you know, the building. You know, I'm talking about us. As we actively serve Jesus Christ. So when people come to Christ, when they are uh, discipled in Him, when people are healed as uh, we pray for them, every time we take authority over the powers of darkness, anytime we minister truth and love and compassion and grace to others, that is the kingdom of God being expressed through the church on earth as it is in heaven because his rule and reign is being expressed in power and authority on the earth just as it is in heaven. Does that make sense? Now, all that sounds great. And yes, that's good information. It's, it's good to know. But what bearing does that have exactly on how I choose to live my life? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because back in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus, in one paragraph, sums up the way that 99% of us, I would say, live our lives. And how that is, in fact, out of sync with his kingdom here on earth today. You see, we, we get up every morning and we tend to our business first. Right? Notice I said our business. Uh, we make sure that our needs are met. That our income is secure. That our bodies are fed. That our homes are supplied. That our desires are addressed first. And then when the important things are all buttoned up for the day, assuming there's time left over, we might look to his business. Maybe, maybe we check on someone else. Maybe we pray with someone else. We uh, provide something for someone else. We meet someone else's desire for something, and that's good. But it's the reverse of what Jesus said to do. Now, don't get mad at me, because I love you, and I'm just a messenger, okay? Let's read it in Matthew 6, starting in verse 25. Jesus said, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father, he knows that you need them all. But seek, what? First, the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you, okay? He's not saying here, don't take care of yourself and your family. He's not saying quit your job and wander the streets and he'll just provide for you somehow. What he's saying is that we've put working for ourselves and our own needs before kingdom work. And it should be the other way around. That's why he ended up this whole statement with seek first the kingdom. We've got it the other way around. It, 
And that sounds nice to say that. I know we say that all the time, but what does it really look like? Well, it looks something like this. Rather than waking up in the morning and instantly allowing your thoughts to turn uh, to that meeting, you know, that you, that you have in a few hours at work or that project you're working on for your job or how you're going to make it to the next paycheck or that widget that you've had your eye on that you're finally going to be able to buy, you know, what, what you're going to eat for breakfast, fill in the blank here. Before any of that, it's getting up maybe just a little bit earlier and humbly coming before the Lord and saying, Father, you know that I have a lot on my plate today. I have a lot that I'm responsible for. There are many things to be addressed today, but before I give any time or attention or energy to any of that, what would you have me do today? And then periodically, throughout your day, take pause and maybe pray something similar. When you do that consistently, you'll find that sometimes he directs you on the best way to approach that meeting you've got coming up. Sometimes he'll give you a breakthrough idea for that project that you're working on. Sometimes he'll simply give you a piece about the situation that you're in. And every once in a while... He'll divert you. He'll send you on a, a kingdom errand that may be a departure from your routine, sort of like the Good Samaritan. I doubt that he was expecting to walk up on someone that day half dead on the side of the road, right? The priest and the Levite, they were too busy with their own work to think about kingdom work. But the Samaritan, the one least expected to stop and help someone in need out of the three that walked by that day, he allowed his plans for the day to be interrupted because he was attentive to someone else's needs before his own. This is what he's trying to tell us. When you seek first the kingdom of God, once in a while he'll interrupt, interrupt your, your plans. It may be to meet someone else's material need or uh, to speak a timely word of encouragement to someone who's hurting, to pray for someone uh, in desperate need of healing. But whatever it is, when you seek first the kingdom, you can be assured of two things. One, that you're about his business, that the kingdom of God is being expressed through you in that moment. And number two, that all of your needs are going to be met. You see, we just have to reverse our mode of operation most of the time from seeking our kingdom first to seeking his kingdom first. And then he makes everything work out the way that it's supposed to after that. Now let me tell you about my friends, Billy and Kathy Smith. Most of you know some of the story. Billy has been battling liver disease. They go to church here, for those of you that don't know them. Liver disease nearly took his life a few months ago. He was in a coma. He's been in and out of the hospital. He's lost his job. And then because of the loss of income, they almost lost their house more than once. Bills mounting. Questions about treatment options going unanswered for months. Uncertainty about everything, everywhere they turned. And on top of that, Kathy struggling with her own health issues. The need, as you know, those of you that know them, 
has been tremendous, at times, in fact, almost crushing. And yet they routinely call me during the week at the office to ask me how I'm doing. Like they'll just call me up and say, hey, pastor, how you doing? Sometimes I want to scream at them. What do you mean, how am I doing? What does it matter how I'm doing? How are you doing? But they want to know. They want to know how I'm doing. And then they always take the time. They always take the time to encourage me. They'll drive by here just to encourage me. But what else? On multiple occasions, they've come by the church. Did it this week. They bring food and clothing for us and our kids, my family. Because they know that money's been tight for us. Billy has brought me shirts and shoes that he's gone and bought for himself and never worn. Brand new clothing. And instead, he'll come by the church and say, I want you to have this. And he's given me clothes. Because they worry about me and my wife and our kids. Are you kidding me? Kathy's given my wife jewelry because she wants Mary Beth to have nice things. In fact, on more than one occasion, they've handed me cash and worried that it wasn't enough. Billy and Kathy Smith astound me. But it doesn't end there because every single time they come and bless us with something, even if it's just a word of encouragement, they always end the conversation with us by telling us about all the ways that God has been blessing them, taking care of them, and meeting all their needs. They come by with testimonies. Oh, guess what, Pastor Rob? They've extended our, our medical care that, that, that they've given us since I don't have any work, and it's going to extend through the period of time until our house is paid for. You know, and they've been worried about losing the house. And all of these testimonies, one after another, after another. Do you know what that is? It's two people seeking first the kingdom of God and then watching as he meets all of their needs. And it's not just about us or for us, by the way. I know that they give, uh, they've done the same thing for many other people, people in their neighborhood, family. Billy and Kathy inspire me to be a better Christian, to live for God and others. And they are a true example of seeking first the kingdom of God. And that is what the body of Christ is supposed to look like. Each of us spurring one another on to greater works by loving each other and putting each other first. And it's happening. It's happening right here in this church. It's happening. I could point out a half a dozen families just like that that have blessed others, including me and my family, in ways that astound me. You're just blessing us. And you're blessing each other. And you're taking care of each other. That's what Jesus was talking about. It's happening in this church, and I'm incredibly humbled to be a part of it with you. We're going to close this service in prayer in just a few moments, but before we do, I'd like for us to share the Eucharist together, the Lord's table, communion, sharing the bread and juice together. It's not only a great remembrance of all that Jesus Christ did for us, but it's also a wonderful expression of the kingdom of God at work in our lives, because when we take uh, communion together as he commanded us to we actively participate in recognizing his sacrifice for us and in doing so we identify ourselves with him not only as our savior
but as our king. Mary Beth read the scripture this morning. He's our king, right? You can't have a kingdom without a king. So as our ushers come, Jeannie, would you come? And they're going to serve you in just a moment. Jeannie's going to play for us. And if you would, please just hold the elements till everyone.